I wonder what you want from Jesus. Maybe you want protection and provision from Jesus. Maybe you want companionship or comfort. Maybe you want fortitude or forgiveness. Maybe you want mercy and meaning. Maybe you want freedom from guilt and grace from the Lord Jesus Christ. What do you want from Jesus? Do you ever wonder what Jesus wants from you? Not that you could give anything to the Lord Jesus that would secure your salvation, because you can't. But do you ever wonder what Jesus might want from you? Do you know that Jesus wants your praise? He wants a heart overflowing with praise for His goodness and grace. Do you know that Jesus, what He wants from you, is that you recognize His supremacy in all things. That He doesn't have to have a turf battle with you over some area of your heart, but that He reigns supreme and rules over it. Do you know that what Jesus wants from you is that you personally, and yes, sometimes publicly, confess your sins? You know that Jesus wants you to so trust your reputation with Him that you can be honest about who you are before the one true God. You know that Jesus wants from you the very proclamation of His name, that He is the great Savior who's come to rescue you. What do you want from Jesus? What does Jesus want from you? That's what we have the privilege of thinking about together from God's Word, from Acts chapter 19, beginning in verse 11, and we'll stretch all the way through chapter 20, verse 1. If you haven't done so, let me invite you to open your Bibles and turn your Bibles there. I think that'll help you follow along throughout the course of the sermon. If you're looking for the Bibles, the, the passage in the Bibles provided, you can find the passage on page 928. And as we dive in, or dive in yet again to our study in the book of Acts, uh, let, let's remember what, what the book of Acts is about. The book of Acts, it chronicles the ministry of the risen and reigning Lord Jesus Christ through His disciples by the power of His Holy Spirit. Jesus has decided that He wants to make His gospel known. And so He's told His disciples that they are going to be His witnesses, beginning in Jerusalem and moving on through Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Uh, We have been studying through the, the book of Acts, and now we're in the various missionary journeys that Paul takes in the book of Acts. Paul goes on three missionary journeys, and we're now in the third missionary journey. We have been, our last time we were studying the book of Acts together, we were in Paul's third missionary journey, and he was ministering in Ephesus. It's one of his longest stops. Uh, he's, he's there for a considerable amount of time. And you'll notice j- the verse just before our verse, if you take a look there, you see Acts chapter 19, verse 10, we read this. This continued. What continued? Well, Paul was evangelizing. He was teaching in the hall of Tyrannus, teaching the gospel of Jesus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So Paul, he he evangelized Ephesus and its surrounding area. He endured scorn in the midst of that evangelism. Paul was pushed out of the synagogue. He set up shop in a school and he kept right on preaching and teaching. And the word of the Lord is reverberating throughout the whole region. And as we're going to see this morning, that has an impact, a profound impact on the city of Ephesus. Jesus is showing, actually, through the lives of people who are trusting in Him, that He is reigning supreme. 
So what we see today from different angles in our text is this, that the supremacy of Jesus leads to the cultivation of His praise, the confession of His people, and the continuance of His his proclamation. Let me say that again because it's the point of the passage and it's going to be the point of this sermon. The supremacy of Jesus leads to the cultivation of His praise, the confession of His people, and the continuance of His proclamation. These three points are going to form the outline of the rest of the sermon. And I believe there's an insert there in the bulletin that will, Lord willing, hopefully help you follow along as we make our way through this text. Let's turn to our first point, the cultivation of Jesus' praise. See if you can spot this idea for yourself in the text. Let me begin reading in verse 11, and I'll stop there in verse 17. Acts chapter 19, beginning there in verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Siva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Well, we see three things happening here in this section of verses, don't we? We see that God, He performs extraordinary miracles through the Apostle Paul. We see that these Jewish exorcists, they're attempting to kind of take Jesus' name hostage, use it for their own ends, extort the power that they can out of Jesus' name. But then we also see that at the end of that episode, that Jesus is extolled. And really, it is that last idea there, the conclusion really, as it were, that is at the point of this strange story, that Jesus' name is, is praised in Ephesus because He's supreme. That story, of course, begins there in verse 11, where God is doing extraordinary miracles by the hand of Paul. And Lucas, he's pointing out to us that these are actually no ordinary miracles. These are extraordinary miracles. Now, of course, miracles are extraordinary in and of themselves, aren't they? Because miracles are God reaching into His created order and displaying His power. He's imposing His power on His created order. These are extraordinary because of how many are taking place and the manner in which they are taking place, right? There's a number of them that Paul is performing, but the manner for for so many of them is that people are stealing his his headbands and his his apron, his sweaty work attire, and they're taking them to their friends and their relatives, and they're being healed of their diseases. But not only that, but also demons or evil spirits are being driven out. And this, I think, it ought to remind us of something we've already seen before in the book of Acts. We've, We've seen something similar to this. So earlier in Acts, Acts chapter 5, verse 15, we're we're told that God's doing amazing miracles through the Apostle Peter so that people would even come out, they'd they'd lay their sick out on the ground where Peter was passing by just so that his shadow would fall upon them. And apparently, they were healed. Now what's going on here with Peter and Paul is that we are seeing the signs 
of a true apostle. These miracles are attendant to true apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ in the scriptures. But really, what's taking place is just a review of what the Lord Jesus was able to do. Do you remember the the woman who had an issue of bleeding for 12 years in the Gospel of Mark? In Mark chapter 5, verses 27 to 30, uh, she just wanted to what? She just wanted to touch Jesus' garment. So Jesus was milling about in this crowd, and she touched his garment, and she was healed. This is what we're seeing here take place with Paul, is really Jesus' power being displayed through his authorized apostle, which is remarkable. So here... We see that not only are diseases being healed, but but demons, evil spirits are being driven out. And this shows Jesus' supreme power, not only over the diseases that our, our bodies deal with and wrestle with, but also Jesus' power over evil spirits in this world. And there's application here for us. We need to be aware of this spiritual reality, that there are evil spirits in this world. We need to be aware of that. But we need not be afraid. Our Savior has greater power than them. And we also, we also should not be absorbed, so absorbed in, in giving our attention to evil spirits that we're overcome and paralyzed. We need to continue to make our way through this world, trusting our Lord who has greater power than them all. So brothers and sisters, believers, remember that you will not be mastered by an evil spirit. For the Lord Jesus is your master. He has claimed your heart and he means to sit on the throne and he will brook no rivals. So you can entrust your soul to our great God, our supreme Savior. God's power is displayed through Paul, driving out these evil spirits. And that's what leads to this story of the seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Siva. You see there in verses 13 to 16. And there's something of a contrast here, isn't it? Paul is able to drive out evil spirits by somebody stealing his handkerchief and applying it to a neighbor or a loved one. But these these men, somehow related to the Jewish high priests, uh, they're not able to. Uh, they're certainly syncretistic in their religion, aren't they? They're, they're Jewish. And they're actually mixing uh, kind of the Ephesian practice of magic. Uh, trying to extort power out of Jesus' name for their own gain. So they're kind of thinking to themselves, aren't they? If, if Paul can do this by the, by the name of Jesus, well then we can too. Let's just take up Jesus' name and try to use that power for ourselves. We need to recognize something about Ephesus and, and magic. Uh, the Ephesians were a very uh, spiritual people, so to speak. Uh, they were very into their goddess Artemis, as we're going to see a little later in the chapter. But they were also known for magic. Um, they, they worshipped probably more than 50 different gods. Artemis was the most well-known. But they were so well-known for their magic in the ancient world that whenever somebody came across a book that had kind of a magic spell or incantation in it, people would simply refer to it as, oh, those are Ephesian writings. So Ephesians... We were so well known for magic in the ancient world that, that they would think, okay, all these magic spells, they just come from Ephesus because those guys are so into magic. So, so that's what these sons of Siva are, are trying to do. They're trying to use kind of a magic formula, inserting Jesus' name to really probably try to earn a buck. We see there in verse 15, incredibly comical, right? Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And we, we see here that, that these men... We're not attached to the Lord Jesus like Paul was, right? Paul was united to the Lord Jesus. He believed in the Lord Jesus. He was submitted to the Lord Jesus. But, but these men, they have no meaningful connection to the Lord Jesus. And they're simply trying to use Jesus by third hand, right? 
They, they say the, the Jesus that Paul proclaims. They're trying to grab onto Paul to grab onto Jesus' power. But they have no personal connection with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now what's interesting how this evil spirit responds to and engages these men is, is very vivid in the original language. We're told, kind of, the idea is that they, this demon, this evil spirit, exercised dominion over these men. Now they were trying to exercise dominion over him, but he actually exercised dominion over all of them. He, he mastered all of them. And so uh, he struck them and stripped them which led one preacher to remark that the seven sons of Siva became the seven streakers of Siva. Uh, but here, we still learn a sober lesson in all seriousness. Do not use Jesus' name for your own gain or fame. This adjuring, that's kind of an attempting to get the right words in the right way for the right outcome, trying to put it into a magical formula. That's what they were trying to do. They are trying to manipulate Jesus' name for their own gain. And we should be warned from such a practice. These seven sons are after their praise, right? If they, they accomplish this driving out of this evil spirit, more people would come to them, pay them money to perform this great deed. So they are after their own praise. They're after the, the increase of their pocketbooks. Jesus, they're attempting to make their good luck charm. Well, what about you? Is Jesus ever your good luck charm? Do, do you ever... Use Jesus for your own praise or your own profit, for your own gain. There's a contrast here between Paul and these men. Paul is not actually setting out to perform so many of these miracles, is he? They're, they're happening by God's great power. And Jesus is showing he's supreme. Seven can't cast out this evil spirit, but Jesus can do it through a handkerchief. Believers, we may resist the devil, and he will flee from us. But as one dear Christian said, if we think we can resist the devil by the bare using of Christ's name, or any part of his word as a spell or a charm, he will prevail against us. We've got to be careful not to use Jesus for our own personal praise and profit. The only way to prevail over the devil is through a sincere praise of Jesus. And that's what happens in verse 17, isn't it? Notice the extent of Jesus' praise. Jesus' name and power becomes known to, see that word, all, all the residents of Ephesus. And fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. We should dare to hope that this fear is a, is a filial fear, uh, a fear of joyful and affectionate faith in Jesus Christ. This fear is, is a fear that's filled with gratitude for Jesus' rescue from the devil's schemes and snares. Uh, this fear is a, is a drawing near to Jesus, not a departing from Him in a kind of terrified way. This is not a dread, but a delighting in Jesus. This is a fear that, that relies upon Jesus, that, that trusts Him in the midst of difficulty, that reposes in His providence and power. That's what this fear is here. And sisters, this is the kind of fear that we're going to talk about at the women's retreat, Lord willing, in the weeks ahead. What it means to fear the Lord is drawing near to Him, not departing from Him. So I'd encourage you to consider attending that retreat if you're able to open up God's Word together with us over those few days. Do you have this fear? A fear that seeks to draw near to the Lord Jesus 
in the midst of all opposition and difficulty, in the midst of Satan's temptations, this is the kind of fear we need each and every day of our lives. We need a fear that extols, that praises the name, that exalts the name, that magnifies the name, that lifts high the name of the Lord Jesus. See, this shows us whose name should really win. Should Jesus' name be lifted up or our own? Is He supreme? Does He reign supreme in your life? Is He extolled in in every facet? Does He reign occasionally or all the time? Who does He get to order and reorder His priorities for you to, to His liking? Is He the priority? It is the supreme priority when there are other priorities competing. This is how Jesus' name is extolled in our lives. So brothers and sisters, beloved, let me encourage us to to cultivate His praise by remembering, by remembering His creative power, by remembering His ruling grace, by remembering His redeeming love, His sanctifying mercy, and His promise of glory. Cultivate the praise of Jesus. Remember who He is. And what he has done. I like how Derek put it earlier in the service. We will praise him uh, for all his worth. We'll give him our worship. This is exactly what we should do. We should remember his mighty works, his merciful words. Extol the name of Jesus. We've considered how the supremacy of Jesus, shown over evil spirits and diseases, leads to the cultivation of Jesus' praise. But we also see that it has this impact on believers in town. And it leads to the confession of Jesus' people. This is our second point. Take a look at verses 18 to 20. Read those, follow along as I read those verses now. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Here we see that Jesus' people, they confess their sins. They even change their practice. And the word is on the move. It's conquering. There's a conquest of the word here in these verses. And these verses we need to remember. Verse 18 is connected to verses 17 and what came before. This is a response of Jesus' people to the display of Jesus' power. Notice in verse 18 that it was many believers who were coming. They were the ones who were confessing and divulging their practices. And that that phrase, divulging their practices, it refers to magical spells. These believers, they were still practicing magic. These were people who had been baptized who had made their public profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and still had sin in them. Did you know that's a thing? That believers, after their baptism, after their public profession, still struggle with sin. Yet sometimes we we even hide it. Sometimes we even help it grow, sadly. But Jesus' demonstration of power and praise leads to confession. And what they're doing in their confession is they're taking Jesus' side against sin. They're they're coming clean. They're bringing things out into the light. And we think to ourselves, how how are Christians still doing these things? Well, we know not all sins are immediately conquered 
Sometimes we battle them a long time. As I said, sometimes we hold on to and hide them. Yes, believers do this from time to time. That's why we need the loving care of one another in our lives. Uh, believers do this from time to time. We even see it in the scriptures, not, not just here in Acts. But think of the church in Corinth. Uh, if there's a, a church in the New Testament that you want to know has some sin struggles, just go, go to the book of Corinthians and read through. Right in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul tells them to flee from sexual immorality. He tells them not to go to the prostitutes. These were Christians who claimed the name of the Lord Jesus. And Paul is admonishing them to leave those sins behind. Beloved, we have our own sins that we need to confess and divulge, don't we? Confession is good for our souls. It's one of the reasons we have a prayer of confession in our corporate services very often. We need to make our sins known and seek God's forgiveness. Do you know what the safest thing to do with your sin is? It's to confess it. To confess that you're a sinner and to repent of it and turn away from it. That's the safest thing that you can do with your sin. is to bring it out into the light. James even tells us that we should confess our sins one to another. Beloved, Hide and hold no sin. The supreme sovereign sees it. He, he sees it. So your attempts to hide it are vain. Hide and hold no sin. Confess your sin to God. And if your conscience is pricking you now, don't, don't try to quiet it down. Confess your sin to God. Confess your sin to those you've sinned against. Confess your sin to those who can help you in it. This is why our, our uh, men's Wednesday morning Bible reading group, we ask three questions. So we read the Bible for about an hour. We talk about it together. And then we spend 30 minutes talking together about how we can pray for one another. We pray for one another. And we ask three simple questions. One, what can we pray for you about? That's kind of a general kind of question. What's on your heart and mind for today? We can pray for you about. Uh, two, are you reading your Bible and praying? We want to try to encourage brothers along in that. But three, uh, is, there, is there anything you're looking at that you shouldn't be looking at? Uh, that last question, hopefully, it encourages confession. Now, there may be some other sins that we should talk about too there, right? Or is there anything that you are uh, not giving up that you should be giving up? So addictions of, of various forms as well. Is we, we want to cultivate confession. And we want to receive correction and comfort from God's Word. So, so practically... Just for you, if you're thinking, yes, okay, I'm, I'm hearing God's word here, that believers should confess their sins. What does that mean? What does it mean to confess your sin? Well, it means admitting you're wrong, ad admitting your guilt. And not, not just that you feel guilty, oh, I feel guilty about what I've done, but that you actually are guilty. You're guilty of transgressing God's law or failing to live up to God's law in some way. So you confess that you violated God's commands. Or you failed to live up to them. Listen to this confession of sin from Nehemiah chapter 1 verse 7. There we read, We have acted corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Did you hear the admission of guilt and the understanding of the wrong done? Listen to this confession from Isaiah 59 verses 12 and 13. Isaiah writes, For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities, transgressing and denying the Lord, and turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering 
the heart from the heart, lying words. Do you hear how sins were named in that confession? We've lied. We've done what's wrong. And did you hear how they were called iniquity? Confession of sin means telling the truth about sin. And uh, Ralph Venning, in a, in a great book uh, on sin, the sinfulness of sin, he says something like, you, you can try and say the worst things possible about sin and malign it as, as much as you possibly can, and you will never actually describe sin as wicked or as evil as it is. I think we underestimate the, the wickedness, the nature of sin. And so when we confess our sin, we, we ought to tell the, the truth about it. We, we shouldn't diminish our sin, but we should admit how devilish we've been in our sin. Listen to this confession from Jeremiah chapter 14, verse 20. The prophet writes, We acknowledge our wickedness, O Lord, and the iniquity of our fathers, for we have sinned against you. It's another aspect of confession, right? So we admit our wrong, we confess our wrong, how we have transgressed God's law, and we also confess that we've sinned against God. That's what sin is. First and foremost, it's against God. We may also sin against others. But even as we sin against others, we've sinned against the one who made them. Confession of sin means recognizing that we've sinned against God. But, but why should we confess our sin? If we know that God is holy, and if we know that we are sinful, why, why divulge it? Why bring it out into the light? Here's why. Because the scriptures encourage us to receive mercy and forgiveness through the confession of our sins. So brothers and sisters, hear these words from Proverbs 28 verse 13. Whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Do you hear those two promises? You, you seek to hide your sin, you're, you're not going to prosper in it. There's no hope of prospering in your sin. But if you confess your sin, you will, promise of the word of God, you will receive mercy. God's word invites us to confess our sin. Because God wishes to extend mercy to us. Or consider this promise from 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Beloved, with offers of forgiveness and mercy and welcome from God, the Scriptures encourage us to confess our sins, to divulge our sins. And where there is a true beholding of the supremacy of Jesus, there will be a true confession of sin. See, where we see Jesus as the wonderful, merciful Savior who longs to set us free from the slavery to sin, then we will freely confess our sins and even give up our sinful practices. This is what believers need to do. This is what everybody needs to do. So friend, if you're, you're here this morning, you're not a believer or a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, I, I want to urge you to come to the Lord Jesus and confess your sins. To divulge them and be honest with the Lord Jesus about them. You know the truth. You know that God made you. He made you to love Him and serve Him and worship Him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And yet you know that you've sinned against God. And the Bible teaches us that the wages of sin is death. So we deserve to be paid eternal death for our working in sin. But the good news of the Bible is that God did not leave us in sin. He sent His Son to rescue us from our sin. And so Jesus, being fully God and fully man, lived the life that we've not lived. He lived a sinless life, a life of perfect obedience to God the Father. 
And Jesus gave up his life on the cross for sinners like you and me. Jesus died bearing our punishment for sin. He died bearing the punishment for all of those who had ever turned from their sin and placed their faith in him. He died for those who would divulge their sin and depend upon him for salvation. And so three days after his death, God the Father raised Jesus from the dead, vindicating him and proving to us and assuring us that we will be accepted in God's sight because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So friend, let not another day go by. Divulge your sin to God. He knows it anyway. And depend upon the Lord Jesus Christ for the salvation of your soul. And if you want to think more about what it means to, to share, to confess your sin, and to depend upon the Lord Jesus Christ, come and find me at the door after the service. I'd love to talk to you about that. Talk with a friend or family member that you came here with this morning. We'd love to talk to you about how Jesus is the all-sufficient Savior, and He can rescue us from all of our sins, that in Him we receive mercy and pardon forgiveness from God. Yes, we confess our sins, and we also change our practice. By God's grace, with His help, we turn from our sin. That's what repentance is, and that's what we see here. Do you see there in verse 19 that the believers who had practiced magic, magic arts, they brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. What a very public demonstration of true repentance. You know, I have sometimes helped believers go to their local trash can and deposit their computer or their cell phone into them. Whatever needs to be done to get rid of them. And maybe you think, a computer, that's hundreds, maybe thousands of dollars. And phones these days, they're pretty expensive too. Yes, indeed they are, but sin will cost you far more. It is never, never worth it. Do you remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verses 29 and 30? Jesus said, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is far better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Brothers and sisters, friends, sin is always the greater cost. And there's something definitive and final about this fire here, isn't there? These believers are throwing their books into. Better to throw those books into the fire than to have their souls thrown into hell. That's what these believers recognized. And it's what you need to recognize too. Sin is never worth its price. So what about you? What do you need to put into the fire? What do you need to leave behind today? Choose this day whom you will serve, sin or the Savior. Hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of books were put into that fire. Maybe even millions. Some scholars estimate that perhaps up to $6 million worth of magic books were burned there in Ephesus. And what a sight that must have been. Imagine the believers gathering together at this great fire, dumping all their books in. And imagine the people of Ephesus, all entranced with magic, seeing Millions of dollars of books get burned up. Their hearts, no doubt, must have broken how they wished and longed for them. But they were gone. It's a testimony to the people of Ephesus. It was actually a protection for them. Leaving sins behind, leaving their magic behind, they were protecting others. Getting rid of those books, they were protecting others from falling prey to the deceit of those books. What a kindness those believers performed in burning those books. 
Listen to what the great prince of preachers said. The burning of these books was a mighty sermon to everybody who saw it. A better sermon than even Paul himself could have preached on this subject. It is a triumph of the gospel when people give up what they prize and suffer great loss in order to get rid of great sin. If we have come to trust in Christ, we will make short work of getting rid of all sin that is against that profession. So beloved, what do you need to throw into the fire today? What do you need to leave behind? Think carefully, but don't think long. Get rid of it. The Lord Jesus is worth it. Sin is not worth it. This was a triumph indeed. It was a conquest of the word of the Lord Jesus, as verse 20 says. Now that, that reference there in verse 20 is really a, a reference to the expansion of the good news in Ephesus, in the broader region of Asia. But notice that the increase and the mighty prevailing of the word takes place in connection with believers' repentance. Think about that. Do, do you want to see the word of the Lord increase and prevail mightily? Do you, do you want to see our country changed? Do, do you want to see your community changed? Do you want to see this church changed? Well, the Christian must first be changed. Right? Revival, renewal, has to begin in your heart. Jesus must reign supreme. And you must change your practices according to His ways. Beloved, let, let renewal, let revival begin in you, what ways does your walk with the Lord Jesus need to change and grow? How can the word of the Lord increase and prevail mightily in your own heart today? Pray for God's word to increase and prevail mightily in your soul. We've thought about how Jesus' supremacy leads to the confession of his people. And even a change in their lives demonstrated the conquest of the word. But let's turn now and think about the continuance of Jesus' proclamation. Let me show you the, the top and the tail, really, of the next section of our verses. We're going to be looking at the continuance of Jesus' proclamation, beginning there in verse 21 and stretching through to chapter 20, verse 1. I think the chapter breaks in an unfortunate place, but that's fine. It's a transition verse anyway. But notice that word Macedonia there in verse 21. If you skip down to chapter 20, verse 1, you'll see the word Macedonia yet again. I think that that's kind of the top and the tail, the beginning and the end, bookends, as it were, of this section. And I think this section means to communicate that the gospel continues to be preached. Let me try and show that to you now. Let's begin there in verses 21 and 22. Read those verses. Uh, follow along as I, I read those verses right now. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem, saying... After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. Now you might think to yourself, Luke, why do we have a travelogue in the midst of uh, this book here? Why does Luke stop to tell us that Paul is resolved in his spirit to go to this place and to that? Because that's what the book of Acts is about, actually. <laughs> The book of Acts is about the gospel going from place to place to place to the ends of the earth. And it's going to end with Paul in Rome, proclaiming the gospel there. So Paul, he's, he's being driven by the Holy Spirit to go to Rome. And these helpers, these are also preachers of the gospel. They're going out and they're taking the gospel 
out as well. So Jesus, he continues to be proclaimed. But even while the gospel is going out, there's trouble in Ephesus city. Uh, trouble starts with a capital T. It rhymes with D. It stands for Demetrius. Do you see Demetrius' rage here in verses 23 to 28? Follow along as I read about Demetrius' rage. Beginning there at verse 23. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. What's going on here? Well, quite simply, that the preaching of Jesus has so transformed believers in Ephesus, here called the way, that's what Christians were referred to there, that there is a slump in the sale of idols, right? Uh, fewer people are buying idols, purchasing these household gods. So the church is remarkably having an impact on the economy of Ephesus. Demetrius, we'll refer to him as our union boss, as it were, he calls together the local idol makers, and he, he stirs up this, this union of men, he stirs these artisans up. And notice that he's pretty concerned about this business. You see that in verses 24 and 25. We get this reference to this business. Demetrius, he brings these men their business, and these artisans, they make money off of this business. So Paul, in his preaching that these gods are no real gods at all, actually is jeopardizing their business. Really, what's happening is the preaching of the one true God is jeopardizing their business because the Lord is in the business of crushing idols. He loves to see idols destroyed. And so that's what he does. And what's, what's remarkable, actually, is that this, this great uh, temple Artemis, uh, where he says there in verse 27 that it may be counted as nothing. Well, one day, it actually would be. That temple actually no longer stands. So this preaching was, was very effective by God's grace and power. But, but you, you look at, at what Demetrius says to these idol makers. He's clearly trying to stir them up, isn't he? You, you can almost sense the disgust for Paul, right? In verse 26, not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul, he's persuaded, and he's turned people, a, a great many people away. And, and you just want to say to Demetrius, as he's speaking to these idol makers, just, just listen to yourself for a moment, right? When those words uh, that... Gods made by hands are no gods at all. When those words come off your lips, you've got to hope that actually something starts to click for him. Right? How can something that man made rule over man? Right? How can a piece of stone or wood, an inanimate object, rule over man? This is why we read from Isaiah chapter 40 earlier in the service. Right? Those idols, Isaiah said, they couldn't move. I mean, these idols can't move, right? They have to be picked up by their maker and moved, or picked up by their worshiper and moved. 
But the great God of heaven and earth, who made everything and all that is in it, He moves about the earth and He works His will and His way. No, man, man has exercised dominion over that piece of stone or that piece of wood. It, it makes no sense for man to give himself, to submit himself to such a thing. So we want Demetrius to, to listen to himself speak. Demetrius, notice that he declares that the danger is, is really twofold. One, that their business, he's very business oriented, their business is brought into disrepute. But two, that the great temple, the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. She might be deprived of worship. Well, a real God will never be counted as nothing. And a real God will always, by his own power and strength, bring out and create worshipers. A real God will make his name known. And that's precisely what the real God is doing right there in Ephesus, isn't he? Through Paul's preaching. What Paul's preaching is showing is that Artemis, sometimes known by her Roman name, Diana, is no real God at all. Well, you see there in verse 28 that Demetrius' speak, speech, it's work, right? They're stirred up into a frenzy and they start shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Now, we need to recognize uh, something of this temple and its background. I said that it's no longer in existence today, and that's actually a pretty remarkable feat because the, the residents of Ephesus were really proud of this temple, and it was a massive temple. Uh, listen to how Dr. Daryl Bach describes the temple of Artemis. The temple to her was four times the size of the Parthenon. It had pillars 60 feet high and was about 420 feet by 225 feet. It was much larger than a football field. It was the largest building in the Greek world. Her shrine in Ephesus was a major site. It was actually one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So this is why Demetrius's rage spread to the idol makers and then to the whole city because they love this temple. It's kind of a tourist attraction for them. But Paul, from their vantage point, is picking their pockets by not allowing uh, idols uh, to be really sold. Uh, and he's putting down their beloved shrine. Look at the confusion that follows as the Ephesians nearly riot there in verses 19 to 30, sorry, 29 to 34. Follow along. So the city was filled with the confusion. And they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's travel companions. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the whole assembly was in confusion. And most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Uh, kind of a comical scene, isn't it? Uh, twice, Luke mentions that they are in confusion. You see that in verses 29, and then there again in verse 32. He even comically notes that most, most of them, think about this, most of them don't know why they're there. Yeah, great as others. What, what are we doing here, guys? Like, it's a, a funny scene. But think about it. Confusion reigns when the gospel is rejected, doesn't it? When Jesus is dismissed, a church, a community, a culture, a country are left in disarray. Only disorder can follow when you reject the God who ordered the world and our lives. 
people of Ephesus are left to mindless shouting for two hours. They heap up this empty phrase, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, over and over again. In the middle of this, we see that Paul's companions are taken hostage, aren't they? Uh, he, he wants to get in. He wants his friend's safety. And he probably wants to preach Jesus, to make Jesus' supremacy known. And this theater that he's attempting to get in is massive. It still stands in Ephesus today. It can seat about 25,000 people. And Paul, his defense is deterred by the disciples, so the believers there in Ephesus, and these Asiarchs. Those were dignitaries and civic kind of officials in the province of Asia. And they're friends of Paul, we're told, which is remarkable that Paul has a good reputation there in Ephesus. But don't you just appreciate Paul's boldness? He wants to get, we prayed about this earlier, I think, in the prayer confession. Paul wants to get right in there and make Jesus known when Jesus' name is, is being diminished. They're saying great is Artemis when the truth is, is that Jesus is the great God. He's the true and living God. But here we see uh, that God, he's providentially hindered Paul from speaking to the crowd. Paul's providentially hindered, even though it's his heart's desire to bring clarity where confusion reigns. May God give us such a desire to bring clarity where confusion reigns. May God give us such a desire to make Christ known when his name is being diminished. But Paul, God, he's providentially hindered Paul from the crowd. And so we see the, the town clerk, he finally steps up the plate. He reasons with them. Let's, let's look at his reasoning there in verses 35 to 41. Follow along as I read. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there that does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis, and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open, and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it should be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Right? You'll remember that Demetrius, the union boss kind of guy, He's stirred up this crowd. He's incited this riot for uh, business, for the, the lack of business, as it were, actually in the belittling of Artemis. And the town clerk actually addresses each of Demetrius' concerns in his speech, in his reply. Now, he, he says, like, look, guys, Artemis is not forgotten. Everybody knows, everybody in the world knows that we're the great keeper of the, the temple, the shrine to Artemis. So you, you need not worry. Business is basically, it's going to come back. Just need some time. This is probably from his vantage point, there's a, a temporary slump in, in, in the idle sales. But then, in the second half of verse 35, he attempts to answer the charge that gods made with human hands are no real gods at all. And his response is, hey, we, we've got the sacred stone that fell from the sky. Uh, scholars think that this is probably a meteor of some kind, but those in Ephesus think that it's a heavenly gift from Artemis. And they believe that this stone depicted uh, a four-breasted woman, which is kind of a grotesque thing. But it's kind of like looking at a bunny in a sky, right? Or like you see clouds, and you go, oh, that looks like a bunny. So they're looking at this stone and making up what they think this god or goddess looks like. But they are, he is a sense, denying that this town clerk is denying that this god was not made by, by human hands. He's saying, no, 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 
Artemis gave us this, this object for us ourselves. So he, he believes this sufficiently answers Paul's charge. And believing that he's made a convincing case, he tells them, don't do anything rash. And then there's this astounding proclamation of innocence in verse 37. Do you see it there? Acts 19, verse 37. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. This, is, this was initially puzzling to me. How is it that Christians uh, who are saying that uh, gods made by hands are actually no real gods at all, how are they not sacrilegious or blasphemous toward Artemis? Well, m- maybe he is just referring to Gaius and Aristarchus. And that, that appears to be the case right there from the verse, right? These men. He, he clears me directing it right to them. Maybe uh, Gaius and Aristarchus are not quite on public record like, like Paul. So if Paul were present, the crowd certainly would have an accurate charge. Paul was certainly guilty of all of those things that Demetrius accused him of. But gladly, God's providential hand kept Paul away so they'd go on to preach another day. And here, I think we see the continuance of the preaching made available by the sovereignty of the Lord Jesus. He reigns supreme through the disciples, through the Asiarchs who gave Paul counsel, and through here, the voice of a town clerk. And this town clerk, of course, he has some, some cleaning up to do. I mean, his job is on the line, right? If he doesn't get the city cleaned up and the city in order. So he, he may have some uh, personal stake in trying to bring peace to the city. But whatever the case may be, we see here that it's the crowd, right? Not the Christians who are responsible for chaos and confusion. It's the crowd who's responsible for that. Idolatry leads to irrational behavior. But Christians, we see, as they go about leading their calm and quiet lives, not buying idols, they instigate this irrational behavior. Notice that the calm and quiet lives of Christians under the supremacy of Jesus can be revolutionary for a society. I mean, think about your ordinary going about, proclaiming the gospel day by day, loving your neighbor, building a family, being kind and generous to those around you, uh, bending over backwards to help coworkers. Think about how the calm and quiet lives of Christians living under the supremacy of the Lord Jesus can be revolutionary for society. I appreciate, I hope you do too, how in verse 38, the town clerk tells them to take matters to court. That's where the disputes are settled. A riotous mob brings madness and mayhem. So let's think about some application for this, for us. Certainly we should lead calm and quiet lives. Uh, we, we may protest even, actually. Uh, you, you may go and protest to voice your rights or to even voice rights for the unborn. But you should know why you are there. Right? Don't be like this crowd who has no idea why they are gathered and cannot give a reasonable answer. Protect the reputation of your neighbor. Let me encourage you to do that. Um, don't be part of a not mob, but also don't be a part of like an online mob or a public mob. So often today, people are trying cases in the court of public opinion. And that's how reputations are ruined. And let me encourage you not to be involved with such maligning. Real wrongs ought to be addressed in the right setting. So you, you need to speak with someone directly. Or if the case uh, may be, needs to be, then go to the courts. The society, thankfully, our society provides relief in the form of courts. The courts do not always get things right, uh, but they are often the right place to start. Notice in verses 40 and 41 that the town clerk urges this congregation, and I use that word deliberately because that's what that word assembly means. That word assembly is the, the word actually that the New Testament often uses for church when it speaks of. And the only way you get an assembly is for them to do precisely what this mob has done is to assemble together. 
in that theater. So he urges this congregation to diffuse their anger and to disperse. And the result of this riot is that nothing happens to Paul. And that he and his companions actually are free to keep right on preaching. So read the last verse of our text this morning. Verse 20, sorry, Acts chapter 20, verse 1. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. And as Paul gets on the road, he will continue to preach the Lord Jesus. To the natural eye, Paul and Gaius and Aristarchus narrowly escaped. But for those with spiritual eyes to see, you'll remember the words of verse 21. Right, where we are told that Paul was resolved in spirit. You see that verse? Did you notice that there's a capital S that begins that word spirit? That's likely because it's a reference to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, who was sent by the Father and the Son, was leading and guiding Paul's mission. The, the continuance of the preaching of Jesus was never in doubt. The mission was going to continue. Riots may rage, but Jesus continues to reign supreme. Like the hand of God quietly guiding and directing the events of the book of Esther, from some of the sisters in our congregation are studying, Right? The Lord Jesus continued to carry on his mission. He's leading and guiding it all along the way. And as we conclude, we need, consider, we need to consider the great hope that we're reminded of in this portion of God's word. In God's word, we have seen the triumph of Jesus over evil spirits. And how this leads to the cultivation of Jesus' praise. Beloved, rejoice that there is no evil spirit who can secure your demise. For your Savior, he keeps you safe. His grace has brought you safe thus far, and His grace will lead you home. Praise Jesus for this. This is what He wants from you. Brothers and sisters, in light of Christ's great care for you, in light of His power over all the spiritual forces in the heavenly realms, in light of His forgiveness, in light of His canceling the record of debt that stood against you with its legal demands through His sacrifice on the cross, give up all of your sins to the Lord Jesus. This is what Jesus wants from you. He doesn't want you to bear them anymore. And this is what Jesus' people do when He reigns supreme in our hearts. So confess and divulge your sins. Jesus has promised to bear them. Jesus is not afraid to call you His chosen one in whom is all His delight. He knows what is in you, and that's precisely why His heart is moved with compassion toward you. And since we are to proclaim Jesus' death until He comes, let us pray for a spirit like Paul. A spirit to continue making Christ known wherever the Lord Jesus leads. May our motive for making Christ known be His supremacy. Our, our desire to see Him reign supreme in the lives of others. To receive the worship that He deserves. He deserves to be proclaimed as supreme. He deserves to be worshipped as supreme. And this is what Jesus wants from you. He is supremely gracious, kind, and merciful. May he reign supreme in each of our hearts so that we are compelled to invite others to come under his sovereign sway. Let's pray for that now. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the mighty power of Jesus displayed in this portion of your word. We give you thanks that he, he healed diseases and that he drove out demons Father, we pray and ask that you would cause us to remember Jesus' great power. And we pray that you would give us hearts that depend upon him. Father, we thank you for the, the challenge of the witness of the believers in Ephesus who gave up their sins, who burned their books. We pray and ask that you would help us to, like them, so trust the Lord Jesus and the forgiveness that's found in him that we are ready and willing and eager 
to confess our sins and to give them to the Lord Jesus. And Father, we pray that you would remind us of our Savior's great power to save. Our, our Savior's power to rescue us from the pit, to, to lift us up to glory, to you. We pray that you give us hearts of praise, so much praise, that we proclaim his name until he comes. Father, we pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.